last week we talked about um, Elijah. And we talked about the fact that Elijah realized that he was not alone. And even in the time when he had fear and he ran away from Jezebel and Ahab, God was there to strengthen him and to put him back into the fight. He was also not alone because there were a number of prophets, 7,000, that God said, I have saved these for myself. The most significant person that came out of that number of prophets is probably Elisha, who came alongside and walked with Elijah and learned from him. The plowman turned prophet left everything and he made a good successor. And God did very many miracles through Elisha. Perhaps the most seemingly insignificant of those miracles happened in a very usual way. In a most ordinary setting. While a group of prophets were building a house. Over in 2 Kings 6, where we're going to be today, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn over there. There's a story about a group of prophets who met with Elisha on a regular basis. And they had a place where they were all together. But as that group of prophets grew that were coming around Elisha, they outgrew the place where they were staying and where they met. And they needed a change. And one of them said, well, let's go down by the Jordan River and let's build a a bigger place there. And Elisha said, That sounds like a good idea. Go ahead and go. Well, you're going to come with us, aren't you, Elisha? And he said, sure, I'll go with you. And they went down by the river and they began to build this new meeting house. Now, this was at a time in history where strong metal tools were actually extremely rare. There was... No harbor freight, no Home Depot. There was no place to get cheap tools. Metal, strong metal, was extremely hard to come by. And most people could not afford the cost of those metal weapons and other, those metal tools. In other words, they were a luxury item. Let me ask you a question. Do you know which group it is in history that historians actually credit with learning and the ability to actually smelt iron to actually make steel? Do you know who it is? Anybody? Huh? Leave it to the preacher's wife. The Philistines. The Philistines are the ones who actually developed that area of metallurgy, because you see, you have to stoke that fire over 3,000 degrees to get iron. 
to turn to steel. There were ways in which the Philistines were a very advanced civilization. You may also remember, oh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about King Saul and David, and, you know, David's going to go and fight Goliath, and King Saul takes off his armor and his sword, and he hands it to David and says, here, use these. You remember it says he wasn't used to them, not that they didn't fit necessarily, he just wasn't used to it. You know why? Because at that point in time, there were only two metal swords in the whole kingdom of Israel. Do you remember who had them? Saul, obviously. Who's the other one? Jonathan. You see, that was just just a couple of generations before this time with Elisha. So when one of the prophets who was building there by the Jordan, he had a borrowed axe made of iron and while he was working that iron axe head fell into the muddy Jordan river and you can imagine his panic Elisha Elisha the borrowed axe it's 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 in the river what am I going to do About 50 miles away from the Jordan River, there's this little town called Dothan. Dothan is moving up towards Samaria. Uh, Samaria being the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel at this time. Because this is during that divided kingdom where Israel refers to the northern kingdom and Judah to the southern kingdom. Dothan is only mentioned twice with any significance in salvation history. The very first time, Dothan is pivotal pivotal in the life of a 17-year-old boy who left his home to go towards Dothan to never return until his bones were... Well, let me back up just a second. His father sent him towards Dothan to go check on his older brothers who were out watching their flocks and moving the flocks to where there was good food. His brothers saw him coming and they did not want their bratty brother around. This impetuous, arrogant major pain in their backside. In fact, they saw him coming and they started to plot how they were going to kill him and leave his body in the desert. Just so happens that a group of traveling merchants came along and they had this idea, well, why don't we just sell him into slavery? They're going to head down towards Egypt anyway. We'll just get rid of him. And that's what they did. They took that boy's coat from him and they dipped it in the goat's blood and they took it back to their father. This is in Genesis 37. They took the ornamented 
robe back to the father and said, we found this, examine it and see whether or not it's your son's robe. Jacob recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Elisha would have been torn to pieces too if Benadad had gotten a hold of him. As king of Aram, king of Syria, Benadad had been trying to wage war against Joram, who was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel and Ahab's son. We talked about Ahab and Jezebel already. Multiple times, Benadad had laid in wait trying to ambush Joram, yet every time that he tried to set up camp around Joram, Joram eluded his grasp. And he thought to himself, there must be a spy in my army. So he gathered up all of his commanders together and demanded an account from them. Oh, there are no spies, O king, they responded. It's that, it's that prophet Elisha. He seems to know the secrets that you tell when you go to sleep at night in your own bedroom. And Benadad said, go and find where he is so I can capture him. And the report came back, Elisha is in Dothan, the second time it's mentioned. So Benadad sent his army and his horses and his chariots down to Dothan in order to capture Elisha. And they surrounded the city at night so that by as the time the sun rose, Dothan was under siege, including Elisha, and his servant Gehazi, who were within the city walls. That next morning, when Gehazi went outside, he looked up, and on the hills, what he saw was Benadad's army, all the Syrian soldiers, and horses, and chariots. Gehazi ran to Elisha. Oh my Lord, what are we going to do? And Elisha answered Gehazi with, when you really stop to think about it, some of the most inspirational words that are in the Old Testament. He said, don't be afraid. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. If you listen between the lines, you can almost hear what Gehazi is likely thinking. This guy is crazy. I looked out there and I saw more gleaming soldiers and chariots then I can count. And in here, let's see, it's me, one, and two, him, and 
How in the world do we outnumber them? You know the answer to that, don't you? Yeah. Well, Elisha didn't have to hear what Gazi was thinking because it was all over his face. So Elisha prays and he says, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. As Gehazi again looked towards the hills, there appeared beyond the camps of Benadad's army a blazing, bright multitude of horses and chariots of fire. Just as the writer of Hebrews tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that is cheering us on, the celestial army of God was there at Dothan ready to fight alongside of God's prophet. Yet Elisha, Elisha had a different idea. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road, These are not, this is not the city. I'm sorry, I have to always, when I think of this, I'm thinking, these are not the droids you are looking for. Okay, I just get that out of the way. This isn't the road, this isn't the city. Follow me and I will take you to the man you are looking for. So he led them to Samaria, to the capital city, right into the hands of Joram, the king. When they were inside the walls of Samaria, Elisha asked God to open their eyes, and the army suddenly found itself in a really bad spot. Joram wanted to kill them right there and then in the middle of town, but... Elisha said, no, feed them, give them plenty to drink, then let them go back home, let them go back to Benadad. And Benadad was so moved that he ceased all aggressions towards the northern king, kingdom of Israel. There's a principle here that we need to not escape us. Instead of calling out the army of God, how about we try a little mercy? Is that army of God always with us? Those chariots of fire? What about that day at Dothan when Joseph was sold into the hands of the Ishmaelites? Where was the army of God then? That's a good question. I got three words for you. You know what they are? 
I don't know. But I tell you what I believe. I believe they were sitting right there on the very same hills ready that day as well when those ferocious animals devoured Joseph, his brothers, who showed a complete lack of mercy towards their bratty brother. Now, I do not believe that Joseph saw those chariots of fire. But I believe they were there. I know in my life there are times when I don't see God. And I look back and I know he was standing right there. How else can you explain the fact that Joseph's life was spared not just that day, but in Potiphar's house. During the years that he spent in an Egyptian prison. You see, we tend to have this picture that if we're not on top of the world, then somehow God must have forsaken us. And I suspect that there was probably more than one time that Joseph felt Truly abandoned, like that day that he left Dothan in chains. And during those years that he sat in prison for a crime that he did not, he would not commit. Longing for home, longing for his father's house, yet God was still there, guiding, protecting, just as he does with all of those who choose to be part of his family. You know the rest of the story, how Joseph got out of prison and rose to prominence in Egypt, and even saving that country and his own family from famine's starvation. Joseph reminds us of another principle. Years later, when he spoke to his brothers, Joseph said, You intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. To accomplish what is being done now, the saving of many lives. You see, family, my spiritual siblings, do you see this? God uses our circumstances for good. Even when we may not realize that he's there. One of them was cutting down a tree, and the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, he cried. It was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When they showed him the place, 
Elijah cut a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. Then he said, lift it out. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. Now, think about this a moment. If you've got your Bible open and you look at chapter 5 and you look at chapter 7 of 2 Kings, We're right here in the middle of chapter 6. Think about this. Sandwiched in between the account of Ben-Hadad's right-hand man, Naaman, being healed of leprosy, and Gehazi seeing that vast army of chariots of fire, we have this insignificant, Miracle about a misplaced piece of metal and a piece of wood make an iron float. I can understand the hearing, the healing miracle of the, the great commander of Benadad's army being in scripture, being here. And I, I can see why the showdown at Dothan is well preserved. Both of those point towards God's mercy, towards Benadad, towards Aram, towards those who don't recognize him. But why this common everyday story, sparing an unnamed servant of God, certain financial ruin, over losing a borrowed, though valuable, tool. Is it because we have a tendency to overlook the everyday miracles of God's presence and his care for us? The axe head was lying there dormant in the riverbed of the Jordan. It needed to be raised, to be resurrected, to be restored to its owner. It needed to be replaced on its handle so that it could become useful again, utilitarian, functional. It's a miracle that God allowed Elisha to make that piece of iron float in that muddy river, yet is it no less a miracle When God takes any one of us out of the muck and mire of a sinful life to raise us up through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ to be restored, resurrected to a newness of life. Christ came from heaven And he entered 
into death to show us that life beyond this world, beyond the grave is possible. Many a man and woman has entered a watery grave to be somehow miraculously changed. Different creature raised by the blood of the Christ. And if God mobilized chariots of fire against all of his enemies... Friend, we may not be even having this conversation today. When I stop and think about it, perhaps the greatest miracle that Elisha performed is one that points to the greatest miracle God ever gave us. That miracle of finding a way to take that sin-filled life and make it reborn, refreshed, renewed, made holy in his sight through a few iron nails and a piece of wood. Perhaps, perhaps mercy is the greatest miracle of all. Father God, We thank you for the things that your spirit teaches us through your word. And we thank you that your spirit inhabits praise. And we thank you, Father, that you love us enough that even those of us that remain unnamed in history, we can see your hand of blessing on our lives. Father, in those moments when we are unsure of your presence, may we not only remember that great crowd of witnesses that's cheering us on, may we also look to the hills for your chariots of fire. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.